Welcome to a special edition of Gospel Truth with Andrew Womack, a teaching ministry that focuses on God's unconditional love and grace. On today's broadcast, in celebration of Black History Month, Andrew is joined by David Barton as they discuss the numerous black heroes of America. In the South, the war is over, but that didn't change hearts. If someone like a Woodrow Wilson comes out with his book and doesn't tell me about these black heroes, then I don't know about them. Well, that's a problem. And now, here's Andrew. Today I'm continuing interviewing David Barton, and we've been talking about heroes, black heroes in American history. Most people haven't heard these things. I never have. I tell you, this has been blessing me and inspiring me. You are going to be blessed. So stay tuned as I interview David Barton on today's Gospel Truth. You know, and another thing that was a lot of fun, too, was on, on the day that they, they passed uh, the 13th Amendment. On that day, let me pull out my picture here. On the day they passed the 13th Amendment, they, uh, they said, how do we celebrate this? Now, Congress has got about six, the House of Representatives has about 600 seats in it today. So there were times when they would have church service in there, have 2,000 there. On the day that they voted to abolish slavery, there's between five and 10,000 people packed in there. So, I mean, we're just sardines in there. They're just really tight. And so when the, the vote what came in that we've abolished slavery, I mean, they threw hats in the air and chairs and canes and jackets and they're hollering, hooping and shouting. And they say, how do we celebrate this? It's the best way to celebrate this is we need to have a church service. So what they did was the next Sunday after the vote, they asked this man to come preach the service. That's Henry Highland Garnett. He had escaped from slavery. He pastored a church in Washington, D.C. He's really tight friends with, with Frederick Douglass. And so he brings his church choir to the Congress. And in the House of Representatives, they have a two-hour service in there and the choir singing and celebrating and shouting and hooping and hollering. Led by a black man. I, I, led by, <laughs> he is the first black man to speak in the U.S. Congress. He's the first, and he was asked by Congress to come do a sermon and show what we've just accomplished. And so Henry Holland Garnett is one of the greatest civil rights leaders in our history. He was really known. As a matter of fact, we talked earlier about Robert Smalls, the, 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 the black pilot who became the black general, who became black naval captain. They took him to his church and had this big, huge event for him in New York City as Robert Smalls is, is his hero. So he was the civil rights leader of the day, which is hardly studying anymore because he's such an evangelical kind of a preacher. But he is a lot of fun. Uh, within that framework. Now, he's the first black man to speak in the Congress and two-hour sermon when he did so. But this man, Joseph Hayne Rainey, is the first black man to preside over the Congress. He sat in the seat of the speakers and presided over Congress. He's one of those early congressmen that came in. And what would the date have been on that? Well, he, he this is 1870 when these guys go into Congress, and that is Joseph Hayne Rainey right there. That is that guy. This is 1870. Second one from the right. Second one from the right. And he goes in and he he is the first man to preside, first black man to preside over the U.S. Congress. And, and I mean, it's just so many firsts with these guys and so much breakthrough that we have. I remember in your uh, CD I listened to, I, I heard the speech of Elliot. And I mean, you had a large segment. Yeah. And man, he was powerful. And I He mean, was powerful. It was awesome. He spoke four languages. He was a brilliant man. He was from South Carolina. And he, he's the guy who had the debate with the vice president of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Confederate vice president. I think that's what I heard. That's what that. you heard. Uh -huh. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy. And when Stevens from Georgia became vice president of the Confederacy, he gave a speech that said slavery is the cornerstone of the Confederacy. That's why we exist. 
And so now after the Civil War is over, Georgia elects him to come back into Congress. So he's a congressman again, but now after the Civil War, but now he's got a bunch of blacks in Congress with him. So the vice president of the Confederacy became a congressman became after a the congressman war. Became a congressman after You can understand why there was all of this conflict. Why there was conflict, that's they right. Just, they just went into uh, fighting in a different mode rather than... Well, winning. they still fight. The, the, the spirit's the same. You just use different weapons. You use different tools. It, it's no longer guns and bullets. Well, it still was in places like the Klan. Now we use political stuff. Now we use laws. Now we'll take the ballot away from you. So there was... I mean... Until you change the heart of man, you don't. You won't change the the stuff they're trying to do. Uh, you may limit it in some ways. You may restrain it by laws, but until you become a new creature, that old stuff is there. So it looks to me like that the blacks actually gained a tremendous amount of influence immediately after the Civil War, but then it regressed back to where you know, bring it up to our time, we see all of the. Um, segregation and yes. stuff. Now, am I correct that they tried to uh, desegregate right after the Civil War? But the They did Democrat desegregate. Now, here, here's another. Here's why the Supreme Court should never get the final word. Because one of the laws passed by Congress, those 23 civil rights laws, forbid all, de forbid all segregation in transportation, housing, dining, whatever. So we had an anti- And this was when? 1874, I think, is that law. And it, yet we fought this battle in the 60s, 1960s. Here's the deal. 1874, Congress passed a law that prohibited any segregation. 1882, the U.S. Supreme Court struck that law down and said, no, segregation's okay. The Supreme Court. Supreme Court did. And then in 1896, in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court said, no, we told you segregation's okay. So that was segregation transportation, 1896. Uh, so 1882, 1896. And then we get to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the, the court says, Segregation's wrong. We got to strike this down. And people say, the court, they finally saved America. No, Congress did this back in 1874. The court is what kept segregation going an extra 80 years and letting the courts have the final word on it, which again, we just talked about. That was never the plan. But by letting the Supreme Court have the final word, they kept segregation going from 1882 to 1954 when the court finally reversed their own decisions to get back to what Congress had done in 1874. Man, this is radical, David. I guarantee you the vast majority of people watching this program have never heard these things. Yeah, you're right. Well, we've, we've and you know, we were talking before the broadcast that in a sense, if you don't know this history and if you don't know what's going on, it's similar to a person who has Alzheimer's. You just, how do you function? You don't even know your way home if you can't remember things. And we have lost these things. And I think it is just really important what you're sharing and giving all of this perspective. Well, it... it it will help set us free in the right direction. You know, we, we talked last week about you should know the truth and the truth will set you free, but you can't be free if you don't know the truth, and you can't know the truth if you haven't been taught it. Uh, now, this is one of those things where I think education has done a disservice because we no longer are self-feeders. We wait for somebody to feed us this stuff. You know, back in the day, we would have gone and checked this out ourselves. Well, now we're going to end up on something like Wikipedia, which is definitely not a good source. Um, and, and so we no longer have the initiative to go do this stuff. I want to know the truth. I'm going to pursue the truth. I'm going to find the truth. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be passionate about the truth. What is the truth? Here's what I've heard. Is that really true? Well, the Bible says you confirm it in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So what we do is, well, my professor told me, I heard it on the evening news. no. Go get the documents. I want to see the documents. You know, so, that's one of the reasons that I love having you on is because look at all of these documents. Yeah. How many documents do you have from early America? Well, from early America, we probably have about 100 
thousand, between 100 and 120,000 from before 1812. But obviously, we got lots of stuff after that as well. And so when you're talking about something, you know, he doesn't just say, well, this is what I've heard or something. He produces a document that he's read. And this gives you a credibility that I think most people who are commenting on this don't have. It's because you've got those documents. It also creates a real dilemma because this is a different narrative than other people have. He can't be right. I've never heard that before. So let me ask you this. How did our education get so skewed? Do you have any kind of a definitive turn when American education began to, like you mentioned, Woodrow Wilson wrote, wrote these volumes and took out all of the black history. But I mean, do you have any other yes, definitive sir. terms? The church came to a theology crisis over how much it believed the Bible. And Darwin really started that. Now, Darwin's not the first guy to advocate evolution. Everything Darwin wrote about had been in print 500 B.C. All Darwin did was take 2,500 years of evolution, put it in one book, made it really simple. But what happened was from 1859 to 1879, the church went through an identity crisis and said, my gosh, it looks like Bible and science don't agree. It looks like we've got difficulties here. What are we going to do? Wring our hands and don't know. And so you have a pretty good size split about 1879 where that part of the church says, you know what? We don't know about science. We don't know about that. But we know people need Jesus. We're going to get people saved. They became the evangelicals. 1879, the other group said, no, no, no. The Bible's fundamental to every aspect of life. They became known as the fundamentalists. So that's where those two... But at that point, we've pulled about half the church out of being involved in every other aspect. So we don't care what happens in education. We don't care what happens in science. We don't care what's happening in media, entertainment, anything else. We're just going to get people saved, and that's it. Well, we used to care about God's principles in every aspect of life, what we now call the seven mountains. So that goes on. Then in the 1920s, three things happened where the, the media really beat up Christians publicly. Um, you, you have what happened, in, in, for example, the repeal of prohibition. And the churches had been behind prohibition. They said, look how those stupid people tried to legislate morality. The people rejected it. We repealed prohibition. That, and that became a real loss for the church in the media. Then you have what happened in the Scopes Monkey Trial, 1825. Won the trial, and the court said, no, you can't teach evolution. you got to teach God's a creator. But in the media, it says, look at these Neanderthal Christians. They yeah, are Brian, so... Brian, even though he won the case, he was ridiculed. He was ridiculed. And so that was a setback for Christians in the media. The third thing was Herbert Hoover got elected president. He was a Christian guy, very openly Christian. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist, crusaded for him and whistle-stop campaigns all across the country. Herbert Hoover gets in and the Great Depression happens. Now, they blamed it on Hoover. Anybody who knows economics knows that stuff starts years in advance. If Mickey Mouse had been president, it would have happened. If, you know, if, if King David had been president, it would have happened because we'd created it. But nonetheless, so you had people who jumped out of buildings in New York City and said, you Christians are killing, causing people to kill themselves. You elected a president, and he's so incompetent, he's put the nation in depression, and people are killing you Christians. And so after three things, real quick, Christians, Christians said... Um, Let's rethink our, our, our belief about society. Hey, kids, here's the deal. You want to be, you want to do something good for Christ? Be a pastor, be a missionary. Stay out of education, stay out of science, stay out of government, stay out of politics. So we pulled out all this stuff, which somebody's going to fill that vacuum, and it was progressives. And so they came in, and shortly after that is when you see these massive educational changes. And you get new guys on the court who say, 
You can't have a Bible at school. You can't pray at school. You can't say the Word of God at graduation. So when we took the Christians out, we let the other guys fill it. And now Christians can't figure out why everything is pointed against us and we're wanting to get back in. And of course, the other guys don't want us back in. So that's the conflict that's going. That, that's where we look at education. It's become so secular today. You know, everybody in my family was an educator. My mother, father, brother, sister, all but one uncle were teachers and stuff. And they had always referred back to, I think it was Dowie, uh, wasn't mm -hmm. it, that came in with the education thing and began to start making changes? Did I get yeah, that right? Dewey. Dewey. Dewey, Dewey is the guy. Me. He was one of the leading progressives. Dewey, Kirkpatrick. Um, you, you had, um, oh, come on, uh, Ingersoll. There's about five guys that had what was called the Progressive Education Association. So the Progressive Education Association doing these guys, they came in with all this. We've evolved past religion. We've evolved past man's much different than he's ever been. I'm sorry, man's not different. We may have better technology. We got the same heart issues we've always had. And so we still got murder. We still got theft. We still got the stuff. So progressive educators came in and started taking over. And now today, um, one, uh, if you do worldview measurements, in the education area today, the numbers are that of, of kids raised in church, kids who uh, have been raised as Christians, right now between 81 and 88% of Christian kids will renounce their faith as a result of education. I've seen that. And it's, it's just not and good. And I've also seen that, I forget the exact statistics, you can correct me, but it's something like 7% or something like that of the American population is atheist among... Uh, it's less than that. Well, among college students, it jumps up to like really high, twelve percent. But then college professors, it's like twenty-five percent. Right. So it's like three times as much college professors are atheist as in the general public, which tells you right there which direction the education is headed. If you look, I'm going to take two positions as conservative and progressive. Let's just take those two. I am considered a conservative. I don't call myself that, but if I tell you, I support marriage as a man and a woman. I support protecting unborn life. I believe that kids should be able to pray at school if they want. If I go through all that, people say, oh, you're a conservative. So that's the label that gets stuck on me. I just have a set of values and beliefs that I think are somewhat biblical. So that makes me a conservative. So if you take conservatives and progressives in, in that group and you look at universities right now, for every conservative history professor, there are 33 progressive history professors. For every conservative journalism professor, there are 20 progressive history professors. Grab this, in psychology, for every one, every conservative psychology professor, there are 814 progressive psychology professors. So that's our education system. It doesn't have what we would call those conservative values. And again, I don't call them conservative. That's just what we're labeled as today. So that's what education is doing. And we keep pumping our kids into this system that we're losing our faith, we're losing our brains, we're losing our thinking. We no longer know how to think. We can't do what these guys did. I mean, these guys that can teach themselves to read in five years and absolutely astound you with their vocabulary, their reasoning, with a guy like Robert Brown Elliott who can make the vice president of the Confederacy look like a imbecile. I mean, just because there's brilliance, that's the stuff we can't do today that we need to be able to do. And so the segregation was, the laws against segregation were passed in the 1870s, and yet we had segregation until the 1960s. Um, is this a fault of the church, or was it the political system, or both, or what's, what's it, going it's on? It's both. It was, and, and segregation, while it did occur in the North, it was a lot more common in the South. 
Because again, we tend to have the filter today of seeing history through the eyes of South because that's where most atrocities occurred. But there was a lot of good stuff that went elsewhere. And so, you know, and even in the South, there were some people who were trying to do the right thing. They're just overwhelmed by, by numbers. So part of it was there, but part of it was the church not taking positions. The church was not a leading voice. If you'll go back to people like uh, George Whitfield, if you go back to people like Charles Finney, all these ministers, they talk about how the role of the pulpit is to be a clarion voice of right and wrong. It's supposed to not just make people feel good and want Jesus, it's supposed to call out the, the, the bad, call out the evil. And, and so we quit doing that because we were afraid we might offend somebody. I'll point out Jesus spent his whole life offending people. He wasn't trying to, but he told them the truth. And because he told them the truth, they got offended. That wasn't his objective. He didn't say, I'm getting up this morning to see how many I can offend. But he got up this morning and said, I'm going to tell people the truth. And, and that's what the church stopped doing in the 60s, is stop talking about it. When you saw what happened with MLK and particularly Birmingham and the riots and what the Birmingham police did and the fire department and the bombing of the buses, bombing of the churches, uh, Pastor Jim Lowe, great pastor down in Birmingham, survived that church bombing as a young boy, still got scars on his body, just a great pastor. But you, you see what happened. And suddenly some pastors started saying, this is not right. Now, what was this story that you were telling me about a lady who prayed that her son would not grow up it, while she was still pregnant? Tell that story. A black pastor friend of mine who is virtually in every black hall of fame, he, he really mentored me so much with, with black history and culture, et cetera. Um, great guy. And he was telling me that he had a, a girl on his staff that her father was lynched in Houston, hung from a railroad bridge in the 1970s. About 1970s, yeah, on his staff. So lynching affected his that. staff, and he said, "Yeah, he, he said actually, he said uh, when my mother was pregnant with me, he said she had a job ironing in town, doing laundry, and she would walk four or five miles, and I forget how far it was, four or five miles into town, do the laundry, come back, and one night as they were home, there was a young black boy that came rushing up on their porch and just sweaty and panicked and whatever. What, what is it, son?" They're coming to lynch me. And so his dad grabbed a shotgun and went outside and said, I'll protect you, son. And the boy says, no, you don't understand. They'll kill you too. And so the boy ran off and the group got him and lynched him and hung him from a railroad bridge. And so my pastor friend, C.L. Jackson, his mother, having seen that lynching, having seen what happened, she was about three months pregnant, I think, for the next six months. The prayer she prayed every day, walking to and from her, her work, her only prayer was, God, if this child be a boy, don't let him hang from a bridge. Man, no mother ought to ever have no to pray No mother ought to ever have to pray that prayer. And that was the culture and such uh, there where they live that, that that was the biggest thing in life. Don't, don't let him hang from a bridge. And you know, as it turned out, he went on to be a, just a fantastic guy. Well, you know, I just turned 70. And so when I was 18, I met a woman in Sherman, Texas, who I was visiting with her. She was a black lady. And I don't know how, so, you know, when you're 18, everybody looks ancient. Yeah, she might have right. been 50. <laughs> but right. to me, she was like 80 or something. But when she was a little girl in Texas, she was walking down by a creek somewhere and, and some whites came and took her and beat her and her friend up and killed her friend and skinned her. Right in front of her, and that is in—that's a person that was in my lifetime. This isn't that far removed, and yet, right after the Civil War, we had all of these laws and amendments passed and stuff. But 
some of the things you said on these broadcasts have really helped me that the church had the embarrassment of Darwin out arguing them on the origin of the species, and then they had the prohibition and things like this, and basically it looks like the church just basically retreated. It got kind of cowardly, and, and that's we don't like being what criticized. All of that that's right. To, I mean, in the absence of morality, it was the church's uh, lack of standing up that allowed this stuff to happen. Well, to use Jesus' language, in the absence of salt and light, there's no preservative and things get real rotten real fast. And so we said we can, we can be inside the church and do great work. Now, Charles Finney, he also was a... He, he stood against some of this stuff, Well, Charles he? Finney is interesting because he was president of Oberlin College. Now, Oberlin College today is one of the wackiest left colleges out there probably, certainly on the far left fringes, but in his day, very evangelical. And his college was the first to treat men and women, blacks and whites, as equals. And this is early 1800s. We're talking about early to mid-1800s. And at his church, um, the kids were con conductors on the Underground Railroad. He no, had his Wait kids. a second. Was Finney in the 1800s? 1800s. Finney you said the early 1800s? Early 1800s. Oh, man, I had my history all wrong. I'm not criticizing you at all. No, but early 1800s. Wow. He, he's I probably, thought he was later than that. He started preaching in the, the late 1700s, and in the, 1792 is when I think he was born. And so as a kid, he's a Christian guy. Uh, and, and he gets actually, <laughs> try this, he got converted to be a Christian in law school. Because in law school... That wouldn't happen today. No, that's right. <laughs> in law school, the books back then were books like Blackstone's Commentaries on Law. When it gave you the law, it often gave you the Bible verse on which the law was based. And so in the process of reading the law, he read so much of the Bible that he got converted and said, I want to be a minister. So that came out of his law books. So then he becomes a minister and he gets involved. And so by the time you get in the 1830s, 1840s, he's really active in the Great Awakenings, early 1800s, 20s, 30s, 40s, right up to the Civil War. Uh, he's active through the Civil War. So his, his kids uh, in college become conductors in the Underground Railroad, which is an act of civil disobedience. Because what's happened, the fugitive slave laws passed by the Congress says you have to return all runaway slaves back to their owner. He said, nope, we're going to take all runaway slaves and get them to freedom, and we're not sending them back into slavery. Now, that's, that's a pretty big... Not many churches today would engage in civil disobedience, but he had a biblical reason for it. He could justify it biblically. And so his kids are helping slaves escape. And the Underground Railroad was such a brilliant thing. But so many, I mean, white guys that we rarely talk about, Charles uh, Levi Coffin um, and, and his wife, they helped 3,000 slaves escape to freedom. And just one at a time, they'd take them in their home, they'd hide them, they'd get them moved out. So they became known as Grand Central Station on the Underground Railroad, moving slaves through. And, and there were so many that did the right thing. And that's where the church was. Actually, the, uh, the Methodist church split over the issue of slavery because part of the Methodist church said, we're not going to take a position. Other part said, no, it's evil, it's wrong, we're taking a position. So the Wesleyan Methodists are actually the guys who really stood up and said, and that's, that's the kind of connection you have with Finney, is, is that kind of stuff. So they were very, very strong. And you know, I'm getting involved in taking stands and saying things that this is right and this is wrong, and I've lost people over it, and I've had people write in and get upset with me and stuff. So I can understand in a sense how that, man, you'd love to just preach the gospel yeah. and go after getting people saved, but we cannot be silent on these things. We cannot be silent on issues, and we cannot stay out of politics because whether we like it or not, politics is what creates the policies that God will use to bless or curse the nation. 
And so we can't, plus the fact that in this nation, my goodness, we're stewards. God said, here, you guys take care of the nation until I get back. Jesus said, occupy till I come. So we cannot not be stewards of the nation. We cannot not say, and then when we come back, Jesus said, I, I'm not really sure I understand this. Why were you supporting all these pro-abortion candidates? And why were you, you know, that's not going to be a good conversation to have, which is why I say party doesn't matter. Positions do matter. Uh, and, and party matters in the sense that parties take positions. But I mean, I'm not loyal to a party. I'm loyal to biblical values. And anybody wants to move that forward, I'll help them do it. Man, if you've watched all of today's program, I know that you were blessed. And I want to encourage you to, you need to not only get this, you need to get this so that you can go over it yourself, but so that you can share it with other people. We have six weeks worth of television broadcasts, the two that I'm doing here during Black History Month 2020, but also we have uh, teachings that I interviewed David back in 2009 and also 2013. And so six weeks worth of interview with David Barton, and this would be a blessing to you. We've also got information about how you can go directly to their website at Wall Builders, and it would be a blessing. You need this not only for yourself, but for other people. Listen to our announcer and please call or write today. Today, you saw a portion of Andrew's interview discussing Black History Month and the role Black Americans have played in America's history. This entire interview is available as part of the God and Country album, which also includes previous interviews with David Barton discussing America's godly heritage. God and Country is available in either a CD or DVD album made from our daily television broadcast. Each of these valuable resources is available for a gift of any amount when you contact us. We want to say a special thank you to the Grace Partners of Andrew Womack Ministries. Your gifts make it possible to put free ministry materials into the hands of many people in need. If you're not already a Grace Partner, we ask you to pray about becoming one today. You can become a Grace Partner or order resources through our website at awmi.net. While there, you can discover more product details and download additional free resources. Or call our helpline Monday through Friday from 4.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. Mountain Time at 719-635-1111. To write us, use the address on your screen. We appreciate your generosity and hope to hear from you today. I tell you, I'm excited. God is going to do something special during these meetings. I am enjoying this conference so much, I literally cannot wipe the smile off my face. Seeing Andrew is great, and being able to meet him was awesome. He speaks into your life like no one I know. I mean, he makes the Word come alive. Andrew's teaching and the love that he has for God's Word and truth, it is the gospel truth. I want to encourage you to check out a brand new program that we created at Gospel Truth TV. This is an original program with Tony Dungy and James Brown. They're both at the top of their game. Tony is an award-winning, Super Bowl-winning coach. Uh, James Brown is uh, at the top of his game announcing sports things. I mean, they are awesome men. They do an interview on Beyond the Game with JB and Tony is what we've entitled it. And they interview these sports figures and share things with you that usually get cut out on the secular networks. These sports figures 
are going to share their heart with you about their relationship with the Lord. And I tell you, it'll be a blessing. So check it out. 9.30 a.m., 9.30 p.m., twice a day on Sundays on gospeltruth.tv. I'd like to give you a special invitation to join us for our 2020 Men's Advance. It's going to be March the 12th through the 14th at our facilities here in Woodland Park. And I've got JB, James Brown, and Tony Dungy with me again. We're going to have workshops in the afternoon. And I tell you, we have thousands of people that come to this. Last year, it was close to 2,000 people. It's going to be great. March the 12th through the 14th, 2020 for our Men's Advance.